Welcome to The Social Minute, the podcast that looks at the social network minute by minute. Today, we're going to be covering minute number uh, 68, which goes from 1 hour and 7 to 1 hour 7.59. We start with um, the continuation of the previous minute where Sean Parker has entered the building and uh, Magnetic is playing and the music starts to build. Uh, just as Eduardo in the deposition, as he puts his head in his hands, says, from that point on, it was a Seanathan. <laughs> and, and then we start to get the first of many, many, many stories from Sean Parker uh, as we jump between there and back to the deposition for Eduardo's commentary on what previously happened in the past. Um, and we finish with um, Sean Parker saying, I put on a tie. And that's where the minute finishes. Uh, tomorrow we'll find out what he also did after he put on the tie. Joining me to talk about today is Tyler Boudreau. Hello, Tyler. Hi, Darren. It, uh, what's funny is that later in Justin Timberlake's career, he put out a song, Suit and Tie. So yes, it, it's, it's, it's clever in that way. Um, he, I, he doesn't say he put on a suit. He just says he put on a tie, which leads me to think that maybe what happened to Sean Parker is he spent his meetings wearing nothing but a tie. Um, <laughs> no. Well, and, there's your problem. You know, yeah. I mean, I've put more clothes on. Don't just put on a tie, Sean. That's why they wanted you out. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we kind of get the story here of, you know, Sean Parker's life. Um, as Eduardo says, um, he took us through his episode with Napster. Now, it, you know, when it comes to Napster, um, uh, personally, I never knew anything about Sean Parker. Um, maybe it's just because the Italian Job remake came out way before this film and popularized the idea that the other guy who created Napster created Napster. Also, the other guy was the one who was sued by Metallica and not Sean Parker. I don't recall Sean Parker being sued by Metallica at any point. Oh, man, I want to get sued by Metallica. Yeah, I think it'd be fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, so kind of like 10 years before this, um, although only, um, you know, three years before the scene is set, uh, Metallica were, you know, suing Napster. Um, and, you know, Sean Parker uh, in this, in this, you know, is painting himself as like the person who was kind of, you know, responsible for, you know, the kind of bringing down record companies. It's a bit of a discussion that we, you know, will, will happen throughout these minutes. Um, but yeah, like when I think of Napster, I definitely never sh- thought of Sean Parker. I thought of uh, the other guy um, who is Sean Fanning. Um, so, but apparently Sean Parker was, you know, was quite involved in everything. So, okay. Um, I can't I can't say I knew his name. Um you know, until this film, uh, you know, Sean Fanning was always the one who was, um, you know, wearing a baseball cap and, you know, sitting in courtrooms and, you know, going in front of, you know, various kind of uh, committees or whatever. And, uh, you know, the kind of the whole the whole kind of trial of Napster was kind of interesting, um, you know, uh, particularly as, you know, Mission Impossible 2 is the cause of Napster being brought down, uh, which I always thought was kind of weird. Um, you know, a demo of um, the song I Disappear by Metallica was leaked onto the internet. And, you know, that's how Lars Ulrich found out that Napster existed. And once he found out he existed, um, you know, Metallica being, you know, a very successful um, kind of corporate entity at this particular point <laughs> decided that they would sue Napster. Um, and I, I think the funny thing about Napster is, uh, me personally, I never used Napster. Like, you know, um, uh, being the age I am, I pretty much own all my music on CDs. And by the time Napster came about, it was about, I don't know, by the time it was taken down, it was about a year before iTunes came to be. And so, you know, iTunes has always been the way that I've put music onto various things and, you know, kind of got stuff off CDs onto digital formats. 
Um, you know, so it, it, it's kind of weird because I never really used Napster, um, you know, but obviously in, in this particular uh, this particular kind of story, Sean Parker talks about how he didn't want to spend his 20s as a professional defendant. Now, the trial of kind of Napster only lasted like about six months. So, you know, it, it was never going to be the entire of his 20s. Um, well, the implication then, is you know, that if like they made a settlement and it could have gone on longer if they if they really wanted to fight for it but he decided to give up on it but i i mean yeah it's it's funny because you know he he kind of describes it here as saying we tried to sell the company to pay the 35 million that they said we owed in royalties um and i guess to them that was like selling a stolen car to pay for the stolen gas which is kind of like yeah you can't you can't sell a company that is basically ripping off the record companies to then pay back the record companies like that's um, that's not like that's not going to really do any good. Um, and though, of course, they kind of like you know they declared bankruptcy. Napster as a brand kind of continued on, um, and I think it might still even exist today. But as like a legal, um, you know, a legal entity, like it, it just basically sells music legally. Um, you know, uh, it just like the Napster name and everything was kind of used um as a as a kind of a different like a, just as a different type of thing um like it's just as a streaming music service basically um, i think correctly branded as yeah, cause i was gonna say i think i've gone on the napster website but i not in any time and not in any time where it was what it's famous for i must have just been like as a weird thing it was in like music class in middle school they were like go on to napster and look at a song yeah it was it was bought um it basically it was like the name was sold off as part of the bankruptcy auction and it was purchased by roxio who then rebranded it you know they had they already had a music service called press play which they rebranded as napster um and then it was sold to best buy for 121 million um, but then there was a deal with Best Buy where it merged with Rhapsody and then Rhapsody in 2016 rebranded itself as Napster. Um, and, you know, I think now iHeartRadio owns Napster and yeah, like that, like the iHeartRadio owns everything. Yeah, yeah, it's like but basically kind of the name Napster just means a streaming service now. Like it's just one of of many um you know it's not it's oh so it's like it's like if you call something a kleenex but you just mean a tissue <laughs> yeah um yeah but also never say that you're searching for stuff by saying you're googling it because google themselves do not want their name to be turned into a generic um but yeah so like it just it's just become like just any other kind of like streaming music service um you know it's not like just i think they're kind of I mean, it's weird because obviously, you know, the service was kind of basically taken down in 2001. So at this point, you know, uh, there are kids who are alive now who are, you know, able to vote or in this country able to drink um, who weren't even born when Napster was a big thing. Like and, you know, so so it's it, like there's a whole generation that basically has happened in the time that Napster was kind of taken down. Uh, so it's it's kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you what year Napster happened and like, okay, two questions. What year does the, this movie take place? Social network. This, I always forget the, the lawsuits take place in 2006. The actual start of the film is in 2003 and it goes through to 2004 and the lawsuits begin in 2005. Um, so the Winklevoss twins make the choice to sue, um, you know, when they, when they, after the boat race, they make a choice to sue in like early 2005. 
So okay. this is and then so yeah, you said Napster was two thousand one that that happened. Yeah, two thousand one. It was basically well, two thousand. It was basically they de- they declared bankruptcy, and two thousand one it was sold off. Um, so at, at this point, this is this is like two years afterwards. Okay. So what I'm curious about is like what are the songs that are at stake here? Like what what music was were people downloading illegally, uh, quote unquote, to well, like to cause this ruckus? Because I think this will be a fun activity in thinking of songs that came out in 1999. <laughs> Coincidentally, NSYNC. Well, yeah. Um, that was that was like I think that what their their biggest like their um, what was the album with Bye 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 whatever that album was. The only the only one I know is No Strings Attached, but I don't know what year that came out. That came out in the year 2000. <laughs> so that w- that would be it. Um, no Strings Attached would have been like the big uh, like NSYNC release that was probably on Napster um, at the time. Wait, wait. So over between episode recordings, we were talking about Justin Timberlake and we were talking about how he was in the film Friends with Benefits. Yes. And that in the same year, the movie No Strings Attached came out, which has the same plot as Friends with Benefits. But but now I'm mad that Justin Timberlake wasn't in the one called No Strings Attached. That would have been so good. When it was well, you've got to remember that No Strings Attached was only the name by the time it got released. Originally, the script was called Buddies. So yeah, it would have been funny if he'd have been attached if they if he'd have been in the film called No Strings Attached. But unfortunately, he wasn't. Um, instead, the boyfriend of the person he appeared with was. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, that that would have been, like, I mean, uh, you know, No Strings Attached, I think, was, what, like, I mean, probably one of the best-selling albums of, like, the year 2000, um, you know. Um, the Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack came out that year. Oh, my God, that was huge. So huge, they did, like, a whole kind of concert. Um, I would also say, as well, that NSYNC's Pop was probably also out before Napster got taken down, because uh, that came out, like, mid-2001. Um, you know, and that was kind of like, uh, I would say like the release of the song Girlfriend, uh, which was kind of like early 2002 was like the stepping stone to, you know, Justin Timberlake's solo career, which, you know, it's really weird, but Justin Timberlake's solo career was gigantic. Like at the start of the 2000s, like, oh yeah, his, his... well, Justified came out in 2003, right? Yeah. Yeah. Girlfriend came out like April 2002. And then, um, the first song, was it Rock Your Body? Um, from Justin Timberlake. Sounds right. Yeah, it came out like I think probably only a few months later, um, uh, because Justified came out um, November two thousand two. So it was like the end of the, the end of the year. Um, uh, yeah, no, actually, Rock Your Body was one of the later singles. Uh, like I Love You was the the first song, and that came out August two thousand two. So there was like a there's like a four month gap where Justin Timberlake was like, hey, end singer forever, and then four months later was like, I'm sorry. I'm just in Tim Blake. I'm not, I'm not with NSYNC anymore. Um, yeah, this was kind of like TRL time, wasn't it? You know, that was like the big thing that kind of pushed music. Um, yeah, and kind of you know anything that was a bit like a huge seller was probably on Napster. Um, you know, the irony is I have a feeling that um, you know there was a there was an app that was called LimeWire, and that was probably a lot bigger than Napster ever was, um, to the point where LimeWire ended up being shut down by courts. Um, you know, like a few years after it came out it was just it was like a thing that would uh that would download um peer-to-peer stuff but it was like through a, a specific application uh, the joke being that limewire 
you could download LimeWire from LimeWire, and the LimeWire that you downloaded from LimeWire probably contained lots of viruses and stuff. Um, so whenever they had like a new release of LimeWire, they had to be careful that people didn't download it from LimeWire because you would end up getting bugs. But if you didn't, if you downloaded it from like an official site, you could get like a clean copy of LimeWire. Um, There's a lot of hilarious memes about LimeWire and how the fact that some downloads would say they were going to take like six years to download and stuff like that. Um, so... But yeah, like, kind of, this is it. The, you know, Sean Parker's talking here about how, you know, they declared bankruptcy. And of course, Christie is like, but you made a name for yourself. And I love how Sean Parker is like, are you dry, Tory? <laughs> like, immediately is like, do you want another drink? Um, and, like, I think this is maybe the first kind of inclination that we get. I mean, you know, obviously, uh, when we first met Sean Parker, he had just spent the night with, you know, a college undergrad. Um, which is probably not a good thing anyway. But like the fact that he's making sure that who, like we said, is definitely not 21, is getting, you know, a steady supply of alcohol. Um, again, that's probably not a good thing. I'm almost certain that in New York it is illegal to buy people who are under 21 alcohol. Oh, yes, that is a federal offense to provide alcohol to minors. Yeah, so <laughs> Sean Parker is basically breaking the law quite fragrantly here. You know, but we we also then kind of jump back to, you know, the, the kind of the present day. And this is where Eduardo talks about his second, you know, business venture, which was an online Rolodex, which in itself just seems like, I mean, I don't know that the concept of Rolodexes is anything that like, you know, most young people would even relate to these days. But the, like the idea of like an online <laughs> Rolodex uh, where, you know, he gets thrown out of case equity like i don't know it's kind of a weird thing um and of course this is where he builds up and he says i'm wanting to do it nice this time i put on a tie and obviously we'll find out where that leads um but yeah i don't know i find the idea that christy is kind of again like christy is the one who's kind of um helping build sean parker up here a little bit she's kind of clearly like enthralled um in the same way that mark zuckerberg is but like she's more kind of vocal about it Whereas you see, I don't know, Jesse Eisenberg does something that's kind of wonderful in the in this scene where he keeps like kind of smiling and nodding. But like, this is the most enthusiastic that we've seen Mark Zuckerberg in the film. Like, you know, he's not <laughs> saying that much, but he's like, he's just constantly like every story. He's like, he's clearly like, you know, hanging on every single one of, um, you know, Sean's words. Whereas Eduardo is kind of not as impressed. Like the way that Andrew Garfield kind of sits slightly off, like to the side and is like, you know like always has a slightly disapproving look throughout the whole of these stories and that kind of works with the kind of the voiceover from the depositions where eduardo keeps giving this kind of commentary um you know and obviously uh, you know later on case equity will become a bigger thing this is again something that aaron sorkin has done a lot in this script where he'll set something up here that gets paid off you know 20 minutes later and he's doing it here again where he's mentioning case equity in passing um and then that will be paid off you know, 15 minutes down the line where we get to actually see case equity be like, oh, let's invest money in Facebook. <laughs> like, you know, that becomes a well, thing. Well, so much of this scene comes back to into play later. Like, there's lots of, like, little lines that stick in Mark's head that he brings back later as kind of important concepts to to fight with Eduardo about. So it is, it is apparent how much of an impact that Sean is making on Mark which is interesting because the framing of the scene uh, most of what we get and we can kind of talk about the different camera angles we get is so there's the the forward and reverse of Sean on one side of the table and um, Christy Eduardo and Mark on the other side of the table um, and then there's the uh, the side view of Eduardo Christy and Mark 
where Eduardo's closest, Christie's in the middle, and March the furthest away, which makes it kind of hard to see what March's doing in most of the minute, most of the minute, or in all of the scene, because he's so far away. It kind of makes Eduardo the center of attention. And the only other thing I wanted to say was that um, the, when when we get the kind of single frame of uh, not the the shot of just uh, Sean, we're we're viewing him from the other side of the table, so he's kind of further away. Which kind of reemphasizes the idea that he's like this mythical figure of like, I uh, like. I, I I don't have any comparison. I'm just gonna end with mythical figure because we're kind of viewing him viewing him from a distance. You can't get a close up of him because he's that impressive. It's also worth saying that there's a few shots where the camera kind of pans over from um, Sean to. Uh, the other three and you kind of get Sean's enthusiasm and you see the other two kind of engaged but you see Eduardo kind of holding his drink being like I'm I'm not in you know I'm not sold basically <laughs> um, and there's a few little I don't think it's fisheye but just the way the camera kind of turns there's a slight angle as it moves from one side of the table to the other um, and as directed in the script it is MOS um, you know so uh, in the German without sound um, you know, so it, yeah, this is like the kind of, um, uh, as I was talking about yesterday, this is kind of like the montage thing. This is where the music kind of swells and takes over and we just kind of get, you know, we just kind of dip in and hear Sean's story and then we get some more of the music and then, you know, the commentary is provided by Eduardo in the present day, um, you know, and kind of talking about like how, how these stories were told basically just kind of recounting them. Um, and it's weird because, you know, if you're if you, like, obviously the way that it's shot, um, you know, it, it, like if you think of this as Eduardo telling the story, you can see that he's kind of like the sensible one who's not drinking as much as the other two and is not sold. Mm, that's interesting. And so it's like, yeah, this is this is this is a flashback, but it's a flashback that you can kind of see is being told to make, um, you know, Eduardo look a bit more like the good guy. Like, you know, he's the one who's kind of like, you know, let's not let's not dive in immediately with Sean Parker. Let's just kind of keep him at a bit of a distance and just listen to what he's got to say and have him explain himself. But let's not just kind of get swept away with, you know, these stories of him kind of, you know, suing record companies or whatever, you know, like, let's just kind of listen to what he has to say and try and maintain a bit of professional distance, you know, like, um, as he, as he yeah. is, like, meant to be the business half of the... As he said in the previous minute, you know, like that's his job. He's meant to be the business guy. So so he's trying to kind of keep a level head, whereas everybody else is kind of getting drawn into the Seanathon. Um and you know, I think some of the kind of editing and the, the camera shots kind of reflect that that that, that you know, uh, Eduardo is the one who's trying to, you know, be sensible and kind of not drink too many apertinis basically, just kind of stay a little bit sober and, you know, kind of not get drawn into Sean Parker's world. You really interested me with that perspective idea. Now you're making me wonder, or just this this is a good question for you. Like, how much of the movie do you think is kind of influenced by the perspective of the the narrator slash storyteller? Because is it always Eduardo the one telling the story, or is it sometimes Mark? And then do these kind of quote unquote unreliable narrator perspectives ever impact? what we what we as the audience should actually believe is real or are we meant to take everything we see kind of at face value uh well interestingly there was a behind the scenes thing where aaron sorkin says that the script was checked by an army of lawyers 
Um, so you would have to assume that pretty much everything on screen is as true as it can be. Although I would say that the, the perspective is always interesting because when we're in the deposition with the, the twins and Div, when they flash back to their kind of earlier scenes, they always seem to kind of paint themselves as, you know, trying to help Mark out. They were trying to, you know, um, help his reputation. They just wanted him to kind of, you know, do some coding for him. They were willing to kind of like bring him along, you know, like, so it's always kind of their flashbacks always from the point of view of like, oh, you know, this is, this is a, you know, a good thing that they were trying to do with Mark and he ended up kind of stealing their idea. Um, and the same thing is kind of true, like these these flashbacks, in particular, whenever you hear someone speaking, like, so Eduardo is the one giving the deposit, you know, giving the evidence here. When you go to the flashbacks, it is kind of from his point of view. And the same is true when we eventually get to Mark being questioned and then you see the flashbacks almost from his point of view. Um, you know, like when the money gets withdrawn and, you know, the account gets shut down and stuff, that's shown from Mark's point of view. And the same is true of like, you know, the opening, like, I don't know, six or seven minutes, um, are testimony that's being read back that is from the point of view of Rooney Mara's character. So, like each each time each time you go to a flashback, it's not always like a neutral point of view. There's always somebody who is giving the story, and there's always somebody else who's made to look a little worse. Um, and that's especially true with the stuff with the twins and uh, and Divya because when they flash back, they always make it seem like Mark was trying to avoid them and not getting back to them and. Whereas when Mark flashbacks to his kind of stuff that he was doing with Eduardo around the same time, it's just he's super busy. So it's like, you know, from their point of view, he was avoiding them and not getting back to them. But from Mark's point of view, he was just really busy with, you know, his, his you know, his work, um, you know, his, his stuff that he was doing at college. And, you know, this, admittedly, the Facebook, but, <laughs> but you know, he, so there's always a slight perspective to all the flashbacks. Um, and it's only really once you get to the dep like once you get to the present, you're in the deposition room, then you're like, oh, so the last six minutes were Eduardo's six minutes. The last three minutes were Mark's three minutes. Like each time you come back into the deposition, you kind of find out, you know, who was giving the perspective in the previous minutes and, you know, what their kind of their, their, the axe they have to grind. Um, in this particular case, we're jumping between, you know, the flashback and the person grinding their axe. And obviously that is Eduardo, <laughs> you know. Um, so it's it's interesting because, like, we never, even though we get Sean Parker's introduction, that kind of falls outside of the how this film is is kind of structured. And we just meet Sean Parker because we need to meet Sean Parker. There's no kind of depositions or anything where Sean Parker's like, yeah, I, I met this undergrad who spoke French and, you know, she like he's never deposed anywhere in the film. So that's just a kind of that's David Fincher kind of cheating it a little bit and just introducing a character, whereas every other introduction does have a perspective and it does have like, um, you know, someone who's giving the narration in the present um, of what happened in the past. Yeah. And you just you made me uh, I I thought of that and I realized I never really thought about the this movie from that perspective before and it's the kind of thing that you need a you need a master director like Fincher and a master scriptwriter like Aaron Sorkin to really heighten take that movie to the next level where it's not just about hey this is how Facebook was made but something I always prattle on when I'm talking about film is it needs to be about perspective and how perspective changes and how the film changes your perspective. And if the idea is that we're, we're viewing the past from the perspective of different characters and how all of those different characters perspectives kind of come together and reconcile in this interesting way, 
that's what makes a film great. And it it takes a lot to get to that point, and I had never realized it before. So it's amazing what happens. Well, Aaron Sorkin, Aaron Sorkin actually said, you know, the, the basis for his script was he had these two depositions, and he said from that you end up with, you know, the, the story being told from those two those two people who are kind of suing him you know from the the twins and divya and from eduardo's point of view and then you also have mark's version of the story and how he created facebook and he said what he did as a writer was took those three differing perspectives and kind of came up with a script um and that is you know that is what the social network is it's effectively three different people telling you the story Let's assume that Cameron is the one telling the story out of the Winklevoss twins because he's the most <laughs> sensible. Um, and you, so you have you have the kind of the, the perspective of the Winklevoss twins. You have the perspective of Eduardo, and then you have Mark trying to basically say they're not telling the truth. And then Aaron Sorkin's script is like, well, this is you know, as we bounce between the depositions and jump back into flashbacks, the the kind of point of view of who is you know who's in the right should change each time. No. Um, you know, and obviously from this this point of view we're seeing sean parker as you know a bit of a grifter you know he walks in he shakes people's hands he knows the names of the waitresses he orders rounds of drinks you know he he gets food put on the table straight away like you know why is he there what is he doing you know like what's his what's the purpose of this meeting you know what is it building up to what does what does he want to do with you know facebook you know that's that's kind of where this is leading but you know to start off with obviously sean has to kind of mythologize himself um you know, and talk about how, you know, how great he was at bringing down the record <laughs> companies and bringing down this and, you know, like kind of all of that stuff has to kind of be put in first before we can kind of find out exactly what Sean Parker wants from Facebook, um, you know, which is something obviously we'll get into tomorrow because I think this, that's where we kind of really get to, um, you know, kind of the, kind of the big thing about, you know, I don't know, kind of <laughs> kind of what Sean Parker is about, um, you know, in the next couple of minutes um so yeah you just to to kind of cycle back to the what the 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 perspective thing it made me think that uh if you watched rashomon and then this movie it would be an interesting double feature yeah well this is it you know like uh, at this particular meet you know this particular lunch you've you've basically got four people and one of them is spending a lot of time talking about themselves and how great they are. And then from the point of view of the other three people, like, you know, one of them is completely sold. One of them is kind of interested and the other one is completely uninterested. <laughs> and so it's like if you asked all four of those people, how did this meeting go? I'm sure one of them would be like, oh, it was a great meeting. And the other two might be like, well, yeah, it was a really interesting meeting. And one of them, you know, which is the person we're with now is like, it was a joke. Like, <laughs> like he came in, gave everyone yeah. drinks and kept talking about himself. Like, you know, uh, and you know, he, he definitely was not impressed. Um, and I kind of like how in, in the, in the kind of depositions, how Andrew Garfield, like in, you know, the kind of the younger Eduardo who's at this meeting is just kind of a bit nervous, but the one who's in the deposition room is very composed and kind of like, you know, just not, not having it at all. Uh, and I like the kind of, the well, two he's different composed, but, He's also one of the things I love about Andrew Garfield in the deposition is you can see the stress on his face. You can see the exasperation that's just gone over him. And it's impressive to me. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I just like how there's a there's a subtle difference between Eduardo three years ago and Eduardo in the present. Like, you know, the Eduardo who's kind of trained not to get too drunk is completely different from the Eduardo who's sitting in a deposition room. And he's like, I, you know, 
this was the point at which things went wrong. You know, like he's kind of acknowledging we, you know, probably they should never have took this meeting. And also he didn't enjoy the meal, <laughs> you know, like he, he's, <laughs> he's kind of, he's kind of bringing it like in the present, the, the kind of performance is very kind of like over it. Like he, he, you know, and I kind of, I kind of like the little contrast between kind of the past and the present. Um, you know, pretty much all the depositions, we always get like a nice kind of subtle difference between the performances of the actors. You know, they always make it clear that the the kind of you know the present day versions of these act characters are completely different from the younger kind of almost more naive versions, um, and there's always a nice little kind of contrast, uh, you know, between those those performances. Something which I feel has to be down to David Fincher being a master director and being able to kind of this is something that Andrew Garfield talked about quite a lot. You know, like obviously David Fincher well known for doing a lot of takes, and Andrew Garfield said he you know him and Jesse Eisenberg both said they appreciated that because. You know, it meant that, that if you thought what you'd done was wrong, David Fincher would just be like, let's go again then. You know, let's do one more take. And it meant that as actors, they had the freedom to kind of just keep doing it until they felt they'd got it right. Um, and then even then, probably David Fincher would be like, let's do another 10 takes. <laughs> and But it's still within there, you know, the, the correct take was always there. And, uh, you know, that's why, like, each scene of this film, it always feels like, you know, David Fincher managed to get exactly what he wanted and there's nothing out of place, um, you know, something that I feel is kind of common in all Fincher films. Like, there's never a performance out of place in a David Fincher film. Um, you know, if he has the time, he'll go back and he'll make sure he gets the right performance, um, you know. And I, that is my effortless way to set up a segue for the question today, which is, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on other David Fincher films? So I, I we might it might have been clear from my from the previous episodes, but I think I've only seen Fight Club and this. What are, what are the other big ones? Alien 3, 7, Fight Club, Panic Room, Zodiac, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Gone Girl, uh, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, um, Social Network. All right, I've seen That's all I've seen Sevenin, <laughs> and I've seen Gone Girl. Both classics. I don't think we can argue with that. Sevenin is good. Um, it's obviously kind of built around the twist to an extent, but also like, hey, I'll take a Brad Pitt movie. Brad Pitt's good. Yeah, he he doesn't eat quite as much in that film oh, as, no. he, as he has in subsequent. No, years. he doesn't eat like anything um, in that film. Uh, he has a sit down meal with Gwyneth Paltrow and Morgan Freeman. Okay, where they do Fair. they do stuff. But, I, but stuff, he's so. not like shoving yeah. popcorn in his mouth, and that's what I need out of him. Oh no, no, yeah. Well, I don't know. That feel inappropriate for a detective to carry around a box of popcorn. But hey, that could be his gimmick. Um, <laughs> you know, he's the popcorn detective. Um, you know that um, that's a now that's a film that I want. Brad Pitt is the popcorn detective. He just walks around eating popcorn, solving crimes. Um, yeah, so he doesn't snack as much in that film as in uh, in later films. He snacks quite a bit in Fight Club as well. There's a few scenes where he's eating. Oh, stuff in yeah, Club. he's always got like stuff um, in his mouth, and he's always he's got that laugh. Or it's like ha ha. That was a terrible impression of the laugh. <laughs> um, at, at one point, Fight Club was one of my favorite movies, probably when I was like seventeen, and. The, not not in a way that like most 17 year olds are a fan of fight club though like i definitely understood that there was a deeper meaning to it that was more anti-toxic masculinity and i i still and that's why i maintain today that like you can make fun of fight club all you want and like the kind of edgy people that are into it but like at the end of the day like it's a great movie that like has a lot to say about like the society that we live in like the society of followers and following blind leaders and um the 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 idea that like fight club like 
I, I don't know the idea that like you can be you can think you're free thinking by by following a kind of cult leader who tells you that you're free thinking but you're actually more bl more blind than ever is something that I think we see a lot in today's um, modern political world. Anyway, I feel like we said about as much as we can about this minute, so let's go to plugs. Is there anything that you wish to plug, Ty? Um, yeah, so check out Fantastic Mr. Fox Minute. Uh, just more film analysis. Me and my sister do that show, talking about Wes Anderson's Fantastic Mr. Fox one minute at a time. Um, I'd I'd plug my st stand-up career, but there there isn't anything to speak of right now. Um, so just follow me on Twitter at Tyler Booty, which is T-Y-L-E-R-B-O-U-D-Y. And you can find us on MySpace at MySpace.com slash The Social Minute or on Twitter at Social underscore Minute and on Facebook at The Social Minute Podcast. Thanks once more for being my guest here today, Tyler. And you are not a Tyler who is a figment of anyone's imagination, I should emphasize. Nor am I a Winklevoss. And I will see you tomorrow. Gotcha.